With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. My name is Bruce Berglund, and I'm your host. Each week, we choose a noteworthy new book on some corner of the world of sports, and we interview the author. This week, we're talking baseball. Our guest is Lee Congdon, author of the book Baseball and Memory, Winning, Losing, and the Remembrance of Things Past. Much more than other sports played in the United States, Baseball has a profound connection to Americans' collective memories and their sense of nostalgia. Some have argued that this linking of baseball to history is a remnant of America's rural past, that baseball reminds us of the small pastoral communities of more than a century ago. To Lee Congdon, though, the spark of baseball memory is not the rural life of the 19th century, but the urban ballparks of the 1950s the time of greats like Musial, Mays, and Matthews, and unsung players like Larry Doby and Andy Pafko, and an era of legendary teams like the Yankees and Dodgers, Cleveland and Milwaukee, and his beloved Chicago Cubs. Lee sees the 50s as a golden age for baseball, a time before free agency, expansion, and drug scandals tarnished the game's traditions. You may not agree with him in extolling the 50s, but Congdon's book does spur baseball fans to think anew of why we watch and what we remember. Hopefully our conversation does a bit of the same. Here's the interview. Lee, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Bruce. Pleasure to be here. So let's start uh, talking about your background. A good part of the book describes your youth in Chicago and your roots as a Cubs fan. But your academic career brought you far beyond the the friendly confines. Can you talk a bit about your academic work, and then how were you drawn back to write about baseball? Sure, I uh, I think my my father, as I mentioned, the book took me out to Wrigley Field in 1948. I was nine years old at the time, and became a Cub fan. And I think, like most young men, uh, I thought I might like to become a baseball player, and. Uh, I played little league ball and pony league ball, and I was not too bad a player. But it wasn't too long before I realized that um, 
I couldn't hit a curveball, and so I knew that was I was going to have to uh, make my living some other way. So um, after college, I uh, spent three years in the army and, and learned Hungarian at the army language school. And uh, when I got out, I uh, worked for two and a half years for Encyclopedia Britannica as an editor and writer, and I thought I might make my career as an editor and writer for for uh, publishers. But uh, then I decided I'd, I'd like to do a Ph.D., which I I did, and I was lucky enough to get a job at what was then Madison College uh, in Virginia, now James Madison University. And I taught there for 33 years, or rather, uh, I was on the faculty there for 33 years. And uh, I, uh, I taught history, mainly European intellectual history and East European history, um, mainly on, on Hungarian matters, uh, but uh, but in all of Eastern Europe. Uh, and I taught there until uh, 2005 when I retired, and um, now I devote uh, myself mainly to writing. When I when I gra- when I retired, uh, I it gave me more time to do writing I'd wanted to do, and I had I had completed a, what what amounts to a trilogy on 20th century Hungarian intellectuals during the time I was teaching, and um, I had in the back of my mind first to write a book about George Kennan, whom I uh, had the pleasure pleasure of meeting during the year I spent at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton in the early 80s. And since my political views are very close to Kennan's and uh, I've been a long-time admirer, I wanted to write a book about him. I went back and spent a, a month at the Institute in summer of 2007 and published a book about uh, Kennan as a writer. And when I was done with that, uh, I'd, I'd had in, in the back of my mind uh, a book about baseball and particularly about uh, what what the book eventually turned out to be, a book about baseball and, and memory. I think I'm not the only one who's noticed that there's a connection between between the two. Roger Angel has pointed this out and many, many others. Um, and uh, I had written a piece about it um, uh, uh, for a magazine about 20 years ago, but since I was doing this this other work on Hungarian history and, and the canon book, uh, I, I didn't get around to it until, until a couple of years ago. So right from the start of the book, you, you cite authors that one doesn't normally associate with baseball books, people like T.S. Eliot, uh, the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur, Czech novelist Milan Kundera. So how did a lifetime of, of reading in European philosophy and literature shape your perspective of baseball? Well, I, that's a good question. I uh, I have done a lot of reading in, 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 uh, both in European intellectual history and, and uh, uh, people like Eliot. And uh, so I, I have this kind of stored up in my mind um, certain things they wrote about, and some, some of them seem to fit in well with, with the whole subject of memory. Of course, Ricoeur uh, wrote a whole book about, about memory and uh, had some very interesting things to, to say about them. I, and I wanted, to, um, I wanted the book to be, to be a serious book. It's meant to be a serious book, but I didn't want it to become deadly serious. To either. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I tried to say, show some of the, the, the funnier sides of baseball as well, but but you know, if you live as long as I've lived, um, uh, and you, you're a reader, you, you sort of build up, as you probably know, you, you build up this sort of store of of things that of sayings that are that that you read, and you sort of remember. And and when they seem to just be right for what I was talking about in the baseball book, I use them. Mm-hmm. So the central theme of your book is memory, and you just talked about Ricoeur's book on on memory. 
and uh, and your book not only Recur, uh, but but your book also looks at and responds to other other scholars who have written about memory and history. Can you give us something of an overview of how scholars have come to view history and memory, and and uh, then go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. And then I was going to say, and then how does how does baseball, in your view, offer an answer to this scholarly view of memory? Well, there's been a, a uh, one of the things I learned when uh, I mean I was sort of aware of the the, the quite a number of books on on, on memory uh, that and especially the Great War and modern memory that uh, Paul Fussell wrote and uh, that I sometimes used in classes um, and uh, then I became aware that. Um, there are a large number of, of books on memory, and in fact, um, it turns out that there has been this kind of uh, systematic sort of turn to memory in historical studies. One of the things I found out when I, I read some of these books and, and read about the whole business of the turn to memory is that um, while this is not true of every book, in many of them, uh, the attitude is that, that memory has been is is not really to be trusted, and that. Um, what we think we remember is, in fact, uh, being uh, a, a way of manipulating the public mind uh, into thinking things that, that are untrue. And I got to thinking about that, um, and uh, in my view, this is this is not true. Although it is, it's 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 obviously true that memory can play tricks on us. And as I indicated in the book, there there are um, there are ways you can check your memory. Uh, because we have shared memories, and because there are uh, confirming evidence that, and uh, and, and uh, I don't know obits and things like that, so that um, uh, it does seem to me that for any historian, memory uh, has largely be be trusted. I mean, otherwise, why do we bother trying to uh, question those who belong to what's called the, the great generation before they pass on? Because we think that their memories uh, are um, can help us understand the past, not that they're they're infallible. No one claims that, but but uh, along with other evidence that it can be reliable. And um, so I got to think that thinking, and I, I do think that that a lot of this effort is an effort to discredit the past and to manipulate the past in the way that uh, Orwell talked about in in uh, 1984, where the uh, the party um, manipulates the past and and uh, and tries to control memory in, in order to lead its citizens to think and act in certain ways. So um, I think this is a danger, and I think baseball uh, encourages us in us the habit of, of memory. Uh, and for baseball fans who are serious fans, I think they often have extremely good memories about past uh, baseball events and past players. And I think this, this has encouraged them, the sort of the discipline of, of memory. We have... Uh, we live in a time when students, as, as you probably know, don't seem to know much of anything about the past uh, that's not sort of ideologically imposed on them. Uh, and uh, they're not subjected to the, the disciplines we had when we were young that, uh, of memorization. And so there's a kind of discipline on learning how to train your memory. So um, I think baseball, for serious fans, is, is, an, is a help to you know, encouraging this habit of memory. And and, and I hope it helps encourage people to remember the past as clearly as we can to the way the way it was, so we're not being manipulated for political purposes. So your book covers really all areas eras, excuse me, of baseball history, but you pay 
specific attention to the 50s. And so this is the decade when you came of age as a baseball fan, but you make the, the argument following others that this was baseball's golden age. So what, what made the 50s special in, in baseball history? Um, well, gee, there's so much. That's, that's a good question. I, I think that the, um, uh, there, was, there were so many things. For one thing, there were fewer teams. Um, there are only eight teams in each league, and so you could, it was fairly easy to follow uh, what was going on in baseball. Now, you know, some of these teams, 30 teams, you can hardly remember who they are. Um, I think that the, since there were fewer teams, uh, the, the players, the level of play was higher. Um, there's simply not as enough outstanding players to go around to, to 30 teams, not, not at least on the 50s standards. Um, the game was... Um, was always a business to some degree, of course, uh, but it was still, but it was a game too. Um, where now it's strictly a business, um, and partly that's because of the of the big money that's involved in the game now that that uh, wasn't involved in the fifties. The players, most of the players, had off-season jobs because they couldn't, uh, or they had difficulty living on their their salaries, even though they were making more money than most American workers were making. Uh, but they weren't making these fabulous salaries um uh so i think you know the the, the it was more of a of a game that uh, roger Cowan called his famous book about the the 50s dodgers uh, 40s and 50s dodgers as the boys of summer whereas george will call his book men at men at work and uh because mr will prefers the uh contemporary game and and uh, and there's something to that I, it is more of, of a uh less of a game now than um it was in the 50s um there were no things like the 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 designated hitter that they have in the american league um there was an interleague play which is sort of uh destroyed the mystique of the world series where you have the two best teams in each league come together and play one series uh at at the uh, at the end of the season um this was before the steroid scandals that had just been absolutely devastating to to the game, and um, it was uh, in part it was a game that was played within the context of a country that was, in in my opinion, um, a better country than it's become. So part of the book is is about the decline of the, the game over since the fifties, and uh, as a parallel to the decline of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and reading the book, it really is an, an elegy to. Uh to 1950s to 1950s baseball and an an interesting twist you have in your book is that a recurring character is the umpire Jocko Conlon and so can you say a bit about your connection to Conlon and the perspective that he as an umpire brings to the episodes that you describe in your book sure Jocko was a great uh, character and and, uh, is a hall of fame one of the several uh, hall of fame umpires um, my father was a was a wholesale florist in Chicago, and and Jocko uh, opened a, a retail florist shop in in the city uh, to help supplement his income. He didn't make enough money to to um, su- support himself and his family just as an umpire in those days. And and uh, so my father got to know him fairly well, and and um, he took me to see him uh, on a couple of occasions at his florist shop. Uh, I remember as a very kindly uh, short Irishman. Um, uh, he was awfully nice to me. He would find out players that uh, who were favorites of mine, and then get uh, balls autographed, signed by them. He would, he got me baseball caps. The fr- I think the first one was from C. 
Kid Gordon, the giant uh, outfielder. Um, and um, once he took a ball all around the, the National League and uh, had uh, famous players from the 50s, um, including Musial and, and Jackie Robinson, people like that, signed the ball for me. And um, uh, so um, uh, it, it was uh, an opportunity to get to get to a certain amount of inside outlook at, at baseball through through Jocko. And, uh, you know, he just seemed to be one of these play, uh, umpires, rather like Andy Pafko, the player, who just seemed to be uh, around uh, on the field at, at uh, important, during important games. So, uh, And he, he was a legendary umpire. He was great fun to watch out there. He was a very dramatic umpire. So um, that, that had a lot to do with you know, in, encouraging my, my interest in the game. Yeah, and as I said, so it's interesting in, in having read baseball books, uh, you typically get the perspective of players who played in the games, but it's not very often that you hear the perspective of an umpire who was on, on the field and, and remembers certain plays. No, that's that's quite true. And he did do a, 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 a sort of an autobiography. Uh, was, it was really written by Robert Kramer, the, the, uh, or Kramer, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, the the, uh, the writer for Sports Illustrated, and, and uh, it's rather a charming uh, memoir of his, his uh, life. Both he was had, had played for the White Sox for a short time, and then uh, and then became an umpire and had a Hall of Fame career, uh, calling balls and strikes and other plays. So, in a short section of the book, you discussed the the pitcher Jim Brosnan, who wrote a diary during the 1959 season that was later published as a book uh, called The Long Season. And you have a brief line regarding Brosnan that I want to ask you to elaborate on. I'm going I'm to read this line. Uh, you wrote, quote, Brosnan revealed what one might call the prose of the game, or what the players were like as men, warts and all. But he showed us little or nothing of the game's poetry, end of quote. So could you talk a little bit about this, the, the prose and poetry of baseball, and, and perhaps, in, in your view, what is more significant for our memory of baseball? Yes, that's a good question. I, uh, I admire Brosnan in a lot of ways. He, he, was, he was a pretty good pitcher, um, and uh, he wrote um, himself uh, two pretty good baseball books, um, in which he did, uh, just as the, the quote indicates, he, he would tell us what the players are like. And so we find out that... Um, uh, that uh, some of them, including Brosnan, drank too much. Um, you know, they chased women or they checked out women in the stands. Uh, they they complained about their salaries and about their managers, and um, so they they come across as sort of uh, well, you know, not all that heroic. And um, this was in I mean Brosnan's book, although I think it's a much better book, um, was in the sort of the same category as uh, Bowden's. Jim Bowden's famous or infamous Ball Four, which he reveals some of the shenanigans uh, of um, Mantle and, and other Yankee players, Billy Martin. Um, and uh, I take it that most of these stories are true, and, and they do give you an idea of uh, that these are human beings. And uh, but on the other hand, that's not why we remember these people. Um, we remember them for what they did on the on the playing field, and. Um, and the sort of magic moments that uh, we remember, a, a great catch or a clutch hit or uh, a certain grace that, for example, that DiMaggio had in the outfield um, or the tremendous home runs Mano would hit. So 
that's why we remember them. We don't remember them for uh, the fact that they weren't perfect, and, and, and some of them were a good bit less than perfect. Um, and I think Bowden does, I mean, uh, Brosnan does a good job of showing you what, what that was like. But, um, again, uh, that's not why we remember these people, and, and it, it really doesn't touch on um, some of the, the miraculous things that they were able to do on the, on the baseball field and some of the heroic things they did on the field. So, so thinking about the literary aspects of baseball, I wanted to ask you about two terms that appear in your book, fate and tragedy. And I was thinking as I read the book, is, is there something about baseball as opposed to other sports that makes dramas of fate and tragedy within the game particularly stark? Yeah, that's a very good question. I, I do think there is something particularly about the game. Um, uh, there, there's so many, uh, I guess the fate business, but there's so many tragedies in the game. Um, uh, the the um, uh, some of them I mentioned. One of them was, of course, uh, the the day that uh, Herb Scores uh, got the hit, got hit in the face with a line drive off McDougal's bat, and uh, he was never the same after that. Um, a pitcher who was probably on his way to the Hall of Fame, and uh, uh, really his career pretty much came to an end when that happened. Or Pete Reeser running in the uh, walls in the outfield and and uh, cutting his career short. Or Canigliero, who's also got hit, hit in the face by a pitch ball. And so there, there are a lot of tragedies uh, along with uh, associated with the game. Um, a lot of what might have been. Uh, what might have been if, if Mannell hadn't had the injuries to his, his uh, legs that he had. Um, I think baseball is gives you more sense of tragedy than other sports do. As far as the fate is concerned, there are... Um, I talk mainly about poor Ralph Branca, who threw the pitch and to Bobby Thompson that, uh, he, that Thompson hit out that won the 1951 championship for the Giants. And, uh, well, I mean, it was, he was sort of, it was his fate in the sense that he was summoned from the bullpen and, and, uh, uh, he, um, uh, almost wasn't summoned. And if he hadn't been, of course, he would never have thrown the pitch and then he would never have been, uh, a kind of subject of endless, uh, stories about, um, the man who gave up the, the threw the pitch to Thompson that lost the series for the, for the Dodgers. So I do think the game, um, Without you know wanting to get making the game sound as like it's not nothing but deadly seriousness, I, I do think that the, there's an element of tragedy and, and of fatefulness in, in the game that um, that you don't experience in other sports. So you make a point that I found uh, especially important that that baseball teaches us that failure is is a constant in life. Can you say a bit more about that? Yes, I think that's that's true. We, if you, uh, as, as all baseball fans know, you don't have to be a, a Cub fan uh, or or Twins fan to to uh, to know that uh, baseball really is more about losing than about winning. Even even the best teams, even the Yankees, uh, fail to win the pennant more often than they than they win it. Although in the fifties it didn't seem that way. Um, uh, and uh, even the best hitters, Rogers, Hornsby, Ted Williams. Uh, even at their be- during their best years, when they hit 400 over 400, still failed to hit 60 percent of the time safely. So, um, 
baseball is largely about losing, and this is something that I think all sort of serious fans uh, recognize. I found, I quoted some of them, uh, Roger Angel, um, Joseph Epstein, uh, Roger Pound, but I mean, uh, I could have picked out a, a dozen other ones. I mean, almost all baseball fans, Christy Mathewson, I had found a quote from him saying that, you know, this is, this is it's mainly about losing, and, and, and also that... Um, uh, this is also important because I think losing teaches us more about life than than winning. Since for all of us, um, life is pretty much about losing. Uh, not that we don't have our times of winning, but but uh, over time we're going to lose our parents. We lose our sometimes our friends. Um, we lose our health. We lose our memory. Uh, ultimately, we lose our lives. So. Um, Learning to live with the realities of human limitation, I think, is, is a uh, increases one's wisdom and understanding of life. And, and I think baseball, uh, especially if you're a Cub fan, helps you to, to uh, see it. Sometimes George Will has said, uh, uh, I think, about Roy Smalley, the Cub, Cub shortstop, who wasn't uh, was a favorite of my mother's, but not a very good player, said that he. It, he he learned from Smalley that life is a veil of tears, and you know he meant this to be a, a light remark, but there's a serious mm-hmm. edge to it too. And I, I think um, uh, Will also sees this that there is uh, uh, much to be learned and uh, about reality, about the reality of human limitation and human life from from uh, watching baseball and seeing your team lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that point really resonated with me. I, I I coach a little league team, and and last year. I had a problem because many of the players would. Uh, so these are nine and ten year olds. They would cry after they after they struck out or after they got out. And and I talked to the team, and and it wasn't so much to say you're you're men, you can't cry. Even though I had two girls on the team, you're men, you can't cry about baseball. But I I couched it in in terms that you just discussed that uh, the the very best players get on base four times out of ten times. Yeah. And the very best players only score once out of those ten times. So, so nine times out of ten at bats, you're going to accomplish what you set out to do—to get on base and to get around and score. That, that's absolutely right. Uh, and you know, as I mentioned uh, early in our talk, that uh, the most sobering moment for me about uh, my uh, baseball future was that I realized I couldn't pick up the ball as, as a curveball quick enough, mm-hmm. just a fraction of a second too late. And as soon as I realized that, you know, I learned, I, I knew that that was it. I mean, I just couldn't see it quick enough. And, um, you know, it's it's good for young people to, to you know, not be, be get, fed a steady stream of self-esteem so that um, uh, and all of a sudden they're hit with the realities of life and find out that, well, the world doesn't revolve around them, and and they do have weaknesses and as well as strengths, and um, that they do have limitations. And it seems to me the sooner we we learn that early when when I was a kid, and uh, it kind of hurts at first, but it um, it it helps you down the line. That's so you don't you don't grow up with these kinds of illusions that uh, um, you know you're you're better than you are. Mm-hmm. So turning from literary aspects of baseball, I want to ask you about the science of baseball. And uh, you don't discuss this so much in the book, but I have to believe that, that you, like 
most young baseball fans were attentive to the numbers, to box scores and to batting averages and to statistics. So can you talk about what role does the science of baseball or the math of baseball play in our memory of the game? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, I would say two things about that. Um, I, I think uh, that one of the things that, that the baseball fans love to do is, is talk about statistics and um, and they have remarkable memories for them. It's, it's, it's incredible. Uh, I have friends who have, I have a fairly good memory for things like that, but I have friends who have better memories than, than I do for exactly what someone hit in, in a particular year. Um, we all remember that uh, Ted Williams hit 406 in 1941, you know, that, that um, Joe DiMaggio hit safely in 56 straight games. I mean, we don't have to go to the record book to look those up. We remember them. And uh, uh, almost all fans remember. And I saw a new book uh, on, on the streak, by DiMaggio's streak, the other day in, in the bookstore, and it just has the number 56 on it and a picture of DiMaggio. So we all know, anyone who cares about baseball knows what, what this means. And um, so it's, uh, and of course, some, some people were good at uh, Keeping, I never kept scores much at Bowlby because I, I missed too much of the action by writing and the, and the keeping scores. But um, uh, that's part of the part of the pleasure that the game affords. I think is is uh, uh, knowing about statistics. Uh, the records matter in baseball, and in a way that I don't think they do in other sports, or they don't so much. Uh, that's what's so devastating, or one of the things that's so devastating about the steroid scandal, because uh, so many of these records now. Uh, have been compromised. Uh, so we've got a player who holds both the, uh, the lifetime and the, and the single season home run record. And we know very well that, I think he's admitted that he, he, he used uh, uh, performance of steroids. And uh, uh, he's claimed he didn't know they were steroids, but, but no one really believes this. Uh, in any case, it's irrelevant. Uh, he used them. And so the records are, are tainted. And uh, uh, I, even in the case of, of the, the Red Sox winning, um, finally winning a World Series or two World Series um, in, in, the, in the last decade, now we find out that uh, Ramirez and, and Ortiz both used uh, drug steroids. So, and they were the stars of the team. So, you know, the, even those records are compromised by these people. So, I think that's you know that's a serious problem, um, and. Um, the only other thing I would say about on the on the other side of the stat business is I'm not uh, overly impressed with um, uh, the sort of projects that Bill James carries out on the um, or the way that um, uh, the, the manager of the, the Cardinals, Larusa, plays the game and that Will thinks is uh, impressive, where they're sort of trying to calculate uh, timing people, how long it takes them to. To get from first base to second base, timing the pitcher's motion. I, I, I'm not saying that this wouldn't might pay some dividends, but in the end, to me, baseball is there. There's too much in baseball that can't be calculated scientifically, and uh, too many uh, in uh, sort of um, actions that, that can't be predicted scientifically. And, and in the end, I'm not very enthusiastic about. Uh, about managers who make uh, make decisions based on some kind of scientific calculation he's got on his computer. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you about what we remember about actual visits to 
to baseball parks. And, and you and I have been talking before the interview that uh, about the fact that I just went yesterday to a ballpark. I went to see uh, uh, the Detroit Tigers play the Minnesota Twins. I went with my two, two young sons. And I was sitting next to a man who was probably your age uh, who has season tickets. And, of course, one of the wonderful things about going to a baseball game is that you sit next to a complete stranger and you spark up a conversation that will last, that, w- that will just meander for about three hours with, with a perfect stranger, and then you, sure. you end the conversation, you go your separate ways. So I learned from this man that he had grown up in Brooklyn and had gone to games at Ebbets Field. He then moved to Minneapolis and went to games at Old Met Stadium. Then he moved to Detroit and watch games at Tiger Stadium, and now he has season tickets at Comerica Park. And I said to him, I, I said, so I've just been reading a book about baseball and memory. With all of your years of going to games, what are the great standout plays, the great moments that you remember from the games he watched? And, and he, he paused and he thought and he said, you know, I don't really remember any great plays. He said, the thing I remember from Ebbets Field is that we, we could sit close to the field, close enough that we could, we could talk to the right fielder. Mm-hmm. And, and after he said that, I was, as I was sitting with my sons and thinking about games that I had attended with my dad, I realized I don't remember that many plays either. I, I can't think of a lot of specific episodes on, on the field. And, and I'm going to bring this back to a point that you make in your book, that our memories of baseball, of being at the park, are much more expansive and more sensory than just what we see on the field or even the outcome of the game. Can you can you talk about that? Yes, uh, the the experience of being at at, uh, at the ballpark uh, certainly trumps any memory that we might have of, of particular plays. And although I think I, I do remember a. a handful of, of particular plays over, over the years that I saw. It is true on a, that most of us would say pretty much what that gentleman told you at the ballpark the other day, that, that uh, uh, he, he can't remember a lot of specifics, but he does remember what it felt like to be in, in Ebbets Field in Brooklyn uh, at the ball game, And, and, the, and everyone who was a, a Brooklyn Dodger fan and went to Ebbets Field says the same thing, the, the Proximity that uh, fans could be to the to the players in the sense that they could even talk to them. They get so close to them, uh, and uh, the experience of being in Wrigley Field for Cub fans uh, is is very similar to that. So that um, even though we suffered through most of the time when we were out there, the Cubs lost. Nevertheless, the experience of being at the ballpark and the and the the, the, the memories that that triggers for us. Um, Memories of going going to the park with our father or uh, with our friends uh, or uh, even outside of that, it, it tends to expand into uh, memories of what it was like to grow up in America in the 1950s uh, and uh, as opposed to what America has become now. So um, I, I think the, that's true of this, Paul, that it, it, it tends to lead... One memory leads to another, and one of the things I, I, I tried to do in the, in the baseball book is, is to, to, to go from one memory to, to another, even though uh, they were only uh, not always uh, intimately connected. But just the way the memory works when you sit down and start thinking about things and remembering things, you remember one thing and that triggers a memory about something else, and pretty soon it's, it's not just baseball anymore. It's a, it's a whole world that... Um, that once existed, and, and uh, 
So, and those memories are precious to people, even though if they can't put their finger exactly on a specific thing, the whole atmosphere of, of, of a time and a place comes back to them. And uh, it means a lot to them because it, it, it's, it's part of who they, who they are as human beings and, and part of who we are as a people. Yeah. And there is, as you talk about in the book, and as you just said, there is something of a sadness about uh, remembering something that that's past. So you you came of age in the fifties going to baseball. I came of age in the in the seventies and early eighties going to baseball. But one thing that uh, uh, the person who was sitting next to me, he and I both uh, really lamented about, is the noise that is in ballparks today. And and I said to my sons, uh, yeah, back. When I used to go to games, it was just an organ between innings, and and the you know the man who had gone to Ebbets Field sit next to me, he nodded along with me, and and he had this same uh, sense of disappointment of of the loud music that plays between innings and before each player comes to back. That's right. I think the uh, I was out just through Wrigley Field uh, about about three weeks ago, and and the uh, although they've done a pretty good job of. of Keeping uh, advertisements away as far as visual advertisements all over the park, they don't have that. But they do between innings do a lot of verbal advertising. That that's almost endless. The one of the disappointing things I think uh, of of the modern times is that the baseball is no longer the national pastime, and most most people, especially young people, prefer other things. Uh, more more frenetic sports like fo- fo- football when it's when they're not standing around and and basketball and uh, for most people including my children baseball is too slow too boring um, and so what you get at, uh, at ballpark now is not so much real fans as sort of entertainment seekers um, they they might as well be at a rock concert I mean it, it's just it, baseball is just another entertainment that's all and some of these players uh, especially the drug users. Um, were quite explicit about it. That was their belief. Uh, Bond said this. Uh, uh, was the other guy? Um, oh, oh, Canseco said this. Uh, uh, Jambi said this. They all say the same thing. We thought of ourselves as entertainers, and uh, you know, you should let us entertain. We're, we're nothing but entertainers, and and in some ways, that's what baseball has has become. For except for those serious fans, it's just just another form of entertainment, and. Uh, I think so. You get it at the ballparks a very different brand of person at the park, and uh, uh, and also the big money is such that they have to do all this advertising. In fact, calling stadiums by the names of companies is a particular vulgarity that gets to me. But um, uh, so it, it's a it's a very different feel when you go to the ballpark now than it was back in the fifties. So I want to ask just one more thing, or. or uh bring up an idea in terms of why the action on the field is a small part of our, our baseball memories. And I, I was reminded about this yesterday while watching the game, that baseball is a sport with, with really a limited scope of accomplishment. And uh, so, so to give you examples, I saw an unheralded outfielder make a fantastic sliding catch. And then I saw a former MVP who had a ball go off his glove into the outfield for an extra base hit. I, there was a rookie catcher with an average below 200 who went two for four at the plate yesterday. And there was a future Hall of Famer who went two for four at the plate yesterday. And, uh, and if I go, in a game, go to a game again in 10 years, 20 years, you'll see that similar range of, of failure and success, uh, great players with bad days, 
good players or average players with great days. And I think this realization about baseball got to a uh, or gets to a key theme in your book, and that's the theme of continuity in baseball. Uh, yes, I mean those are you know those are big subjects. The the um, you're, you're right. I mean uh, you you find some some days uh, you know strictly mediocre players you know get the get the winning hit, and and someone like Ted Williams plays in the World Series and it's uh, uh, one hundred and ten or whatever it was. Um, so it's it's. Um, uh, it, 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 I think one of the reasons that you, you get this is uh, one thing that struck me about the, the contemporary game is that um, so many of the players are basically mediocre. That's because there's just not enough talent to go around. Some of these players would never, if, if there were only 16 teams, they would never have made it to, to the major leagues. And uh, uh, so uh, you, you do see a lot of mediocre players who occasionally make a big play. But some of the, the Catches. I've, I've become a sort of a student of watching fabulous catches in the contemporary game, and there are some amazing catches that these guys make. Nevertheless, I, when you look at them, you look at the size of the gloves on their hands. Uh, when Willie Mays made the famous catch in the 1954 series, his glove was not very big. Uh, it was all Willie, pretty much. But in these games, this, these these guys are carrying baskets around on their hands. Um, they leap, if they can leap up and stick that club up there, you know, they've got a pretty good chance of having the ball lodge in it. So um, some of these catches would never have been made in the past because they just didn't have gloves, these, these, these uh, sides. Uh, on the, the continuity matter, uh, this to me seems to be one of the great uh, losses in, in, in baseball uh, since the 1950s. So many people uh, take baseball seriously and remember the 50s talk about the, the continuity of their teams is a the team when you think of the of the famous Brooklyn Dodger teams, those same guys, you know, Hodges, Campy, um uh Erskine, Jackie Robinson, uh, uh Carl Frillo, they Duke Snyder, they all they played together as a team for years and years. Um, now these guys uh bounce around for not one or two teams, but seven, eight, nine teams. Um, so there's no continuity at all. As Ralph Branca said once, well I think people are just cheering for uniforms, not not for teams. And um, this is a great loss because continuity is 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 crucial to our appreciation of of the team. We we have a situation now where our, our worst enemy is you know plays for the other team, and then next year we get him and he's our first baseman. You know, um, and I think this is uh, uh, this has helped undermine the, the appeal of the game. So. You do talk about, in your book, uh, some specific memories of, of episodes on the field, and I want to ask you about one of those specific baseball memories, a pr- particular play. And this was from the game of April 18, 1954, when the Cubs played the Cardinals. And I'm going to ask you to tell the story. That, that story was one that I've often told to my, to my friends, uh, thinking that I was the only one who happened to re- remember it and not thinking it was any particular thing, except I was struck by it. But it turns out that this is a famous story often told about Stan Musial, and um, my memory of this was, was almost perfect, but not quite. Uh, I didn't remember the exact date, and, and I didn't remember that Paul Minner the Cubs, was the Cubs pitcher. But I happened to be at Wrigley Field that day, and Musial came up... Um, and uh, uh, apparently as a man on base, I didn't remember that. But he hit a ball that I, I remembered being a home run, but apparently was a double on the right field line in the corner at Wrigley Field. And uh, the ump called the ball fall, uh, uh, foul. 
And um, so uh, Musial came back, and I can still see him standing there leaning on his bat at home plate. He never exchanged a couple of words with the umpire just about what happened, but he, he didn't argue. But Eddie Stanky was the then the manager of the Cardinals, and he came out and just went ballistic uh, and screaming at the umpire. And this went on for several minutes before he was thrown out of the game. And uh, well, with all the hubbub, uh, Fuhrer died down. Um, Musial stepped back in the box. I think it was the next pitch, but I'm not sure of that. But it was that same at bat. And he hit the ball almost in the exact same place, um, except clearly fair um, for a, a, a two-bit hit. So um, that's a re- that's just the story I've, I've always remembered because it was so striking. Uh, and uh, that's one of the great one of the great baseball stories. And as I say, apparently this is a story that is often told about Stan. Although sometimes people get it at the wrong ballpark, and and uh, and I got the wrong kind of hit, but it was pretty close. Okay, so I have a similar story, and I, I'm, I'm going to tell you my story, and then I'm going to have a question for you about our, our similar story. So, so my story, and this is one of the few, few plays or episodes on the field that I remember. I was at Yankee Stadium on July 17th, 1990. It was a game between the Yankees and the Royals, and this was the night that Bo Jackson hit three home runs in his first three at-bats. And I remember the home runs... Uh, but here's the twist. I I was sitting in the right field bleachers, but for some reason I remember that the fans were yelling at Jackson when he came out to play in right field. And I remembered all three of the home runs landing within feet of each other in the right field bleachers. And, and like you, I later, later learned from a Joe Posnanski article that actually Jackson was playing center field and that the first of his homers went to center field, and then the next two went to to right field. And so, as as you acknowledge, your memory was almost perfect, but but not quite. And and as you said, other people have remembered that that uh, play with Musial as being in different ballparks. So this is something common with baseball fans that we have a tendency to misremember or even embellish our memories from the ballpark. And I, I want to ask you, why do you think that is? Uh, well, I, that's, you know, I, they do sometimes. I mean, people do tend to embellish memories, I think, and um, uh, and and otherwise, otherwise, there's a, a certain amount of time passes, and so your memory can play some some tricks on you. But nevertheless, the the essence of the story, the meaning of the story, is still pretty clear in one's memory. So that the the, the specific details might be off a little bit, but they don't change the fact that you 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 do remember a significant event. Uh, and you remember pretty pretty clearly that happened. This was 1954; it was a long time ago, uh, and I can remember that uh, quite clearly, uh, except for the double home run business. But uh, uh, I don't know. I think I think that uh, this only shows that uh, people's memory is, is not not perfect. But it's um, on things that really matter the most. Uh, memories are are pretty reliable. John Couch, the, the Hungarian-born uh, uh, American historian has described history as the remembered past, and I think that's true, um, and that means that uh, we're never going to have the past exactly the, the way it, it, it happens. But that doesn't mean that it, it's all made up, and uh, no one, you know, no memory is to be taken seriously. That's not true. Memories memories are largely to be taken seriously. It, it helps if there's some kind of confirming evidence, like, like Bosnowski's uh, uh, 
of peace for both of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like that phrase that you had. The the meaning, even though our memories are wrong, the meaning of our memories is is uh, the same. That that in both instances we witnessed a great a great feat by a baseball player, and though we got the details right, it's it doesn't uh, erase the fact that what we what we saw was outstanding. That's right. So in, in many places in the book, you talk about your individual memories of games and people. Is there such a thing as, as shared or collective memory, and, and how does that function in regards to baseball? I, I think there, there clearly is shared, shared memory, and, and that's, one, again, one of the, the uh, pleasures that the game affords is that uh, we have, with other fans who are serious, uh, many shared memories. And I have... Many. I, I grew up with a bunch of guys uh, who uh, were also Cub fans in, uh, in the suburbs of Chicago, and and uh, our memories uh, are are pretty much very similar of of uh, things that uh, we remember. Again, uh, the details sometimes uh, elude us, but the the general meaning of particular events or the general atmosphere of what it was like to to go to a game in Wrigley Field in the 1950s are remarkably remarkably similar. And, and it has an effect of, of um, not only sort of reinforcing the fact that we're, we're not delusional, but uh, but also it's 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 one of the things that binds us together as as friends and and uh, and ultimately as a nation, if, if we're going to have a nation, it, it requires that we have some shared memories, um, uh, and that uh, that are not you know every one of which is not being challenged or or shown to be false or something like that. I mean. Um, uh, since it, that's not true in the first place, but the shared memories are help, help hold us together as a people, and and they help to to uh, you know, forge friendships and 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 even casual um, meetings like you had with the, the gentleman at the ballpark um, uh, are important because they they show that you know there are other people out there who care about the game and and have similar enthusiasm and, and sim- some similar memories that you have too. So you talk about the positive aspects of, of shared memory, and, and my next question relates to the negative aspects. And, and so both you and I study a part of the world, Eastern Europe, where collective memories can be twisted and end up having a toxic effect on, on societies. So in the experience of baseball fans or sport fans, is there the possibility of a shared or collective memory that likewise has a, has a damaging or a dysfunctional effect on the community? I think not if not if the memories are are uh, not you know purposely being manipulated uh, for for political ends. I mean, uh, as, as you know full well, the uh, what went on during the communist period in, in Eastern Europe was that, uh, uh, and what that Kondor points out so well is that there was a kind of organized effort to 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 throw things down the memory hole that were inconvenient or or make people non-persons and. Um, when when memory is being used for political purposes like that, yeah, it's it's, it's it is toxic. Um, but when memory is is approached honestly and and, and without political ends and views, uh, I think it's it, it's all a good thing. Uh, with with one one exception, there is there there is something that Paul Ricoeur calls uh, sort of uh, what do you call it um, uh, reconciled memory, uh, which I take it he means by this for forgiveness and. Uh, uh, memories that uh, exclude forgiveness and personal relations uh, are, are are not a good thing. I think there is a kind of excessive memory of certain things. Um, 
usually uh, uh, things, harm that has been done to you by somebody um, that you can't let go of uh, can often uh, disrupt a life and, and, and uh, uh, it, 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 can, it can be toxic. Um, uh, Nietzsche wrote someplace that it's uh, we, we need a certain amount of forgetting. I mean, and, and it, of course it would be a nightmare if we remember. There, there are people apparently who remember virtually every moment of every day of the last 40 years of their life, um, which would be a total nightmare, of course. Um, so that yeah, you, know, you could you, you could have too much of memory, and, and uh, uh, it'd be too much of a good thing, I think. But uh, for most of us, that's not the problem now. Our problem now is that. Uh, there's this kind of national amnesia, uh, and uh, young people really don't seem to remember anything or feel that they're responsible for anything that happened before they were born. All right, so my final question is, uh, what are you working on now? Uh, I'm working on a book on uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and, um, and primarily on um, uh, his uh, uh, relationship with the Orthodox Church in, in Russia, and my, my wife and I are, are Orthodox, and so uh, I'm interested in, in the, uh, the, uh, the sort of the Soviet uh, attacks on Christianity and, and Solzhenitsyn's response to that, so that's sort of what I'm working on. So that's quite a range of, of topics that you've written about, that from Hungarian socialist intellectuals to baseball and now to, now to Solzhenitsyn. Yeah, I guess it comes from, you know, I, I taught at a school where I had to teach uh, uh, lots of different subjects, and when I worked at Britannica, I had to write about a lot of subjects, most of which I really shouldn't have been because I didn't know that much about it, but um, that was a job, and and uh, so I, you know, just developed uh, interest in, in a lot of things, and I, uh, I still write about Hungarian subjects, but mainly in book reviews and short essays. Mm -hmm. And do you get the games much now? Uh, not very often, no. Uh, I've been to uh, one game up in, in D.C. at the, the New Nationals Park, and, and uh, I did get to Wrigley Field because it was a college reunion we went back for, and so we got out to Wrigley Field, but I don't, I don't get to many games. My, my interest in the game is uh, I still like to watch the playoffs, but my, my interest, because my opinion of, of the modern game is so low that um, uh, I, I don't follow the game as, anywhere as near as closely as I, as I used to growing up. All right. Well, I will say uh, I enjoyed the book. As I, as I said, I was just at a game yesterday, so it was uh, interesting for me. It was illuminating to uh, to watch the game after having uh, read your book and your ideas about baseball and memory, and uh, and to think about the game in in a different way. And in particular, as I was sitting between someone who'd uh, grown up watching games at Ebbets Field, and then on my other side were my two sons, whom I was bringing to. Uh, you know, to one of their first baseball games. So, so it really did. Uh, uh, your book did heighten my experience of going to the game yesterday. So, I, I thank you for that. Well, thank you very much, Bruce. I appreciate that. All right, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Lee Congdon about his book, Baseball and Memory: Winning, Losing, and the Remembrance of Things Past, published by St. Augustine's Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications. If you like what you heard, please visit the Facebook page for New Books and Sports, where you can give us your feedback, get announcements of new interviews, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening. 
and enjoy your week.